Hello and welcome to the Spike podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and I'm joined by Spike columnist Ella Whelan. Hi. And Spike's law editor Luke Gittos. Hello. This week we're discussing Westminster's war on the web, Tory infighting over Boris and Brexit and the Serena Williams sexism saga. There are people with very malign agendas who are setting up these groups knowingly. If you go along with the grain of the group and you incite violence or you have racist uh, views, you get loads and loads of likes. It's a little bit personal, but it's mainly just what I've seen develop. They're normalising extremism, they're normalising hate, and we as MPs, we, we, we are on the receiving end of that. Labour MP Lucy Powell has proposed a bill to regulate Facebook groups and online forums. Powell claims that secret groups are being used to spread hate and disinformation online. The bill would not only hold up group moderators responsible for the content posted by its members, but it would also force social media platforms to reveal the names of secret groups above a certain size. The bill has cross-party support. Ella, what do you make of the plans? Not very much. I mean, I think whatever anyone says, this is definitely uh, another battle in the war on free speech online. I mean, uh, Lucy Powell's dressing this up as everyone does in terms of it making the internet a nicer place, of making social media what it's supposed to be, which is a kind of friendly environment where everyone exchanges pleasantries. But actually what this is, is just another step in an attack on internet freedom. So we've got the Data Protection Act, Internet Safety Strategy, the Digital Charter, and now this proposed bill. I mean, along with hate speech laws or whatever else you want to say, it's becoming increasingly obvious that politicians do not want us to be able to have free speech online. This is what this is about. It's about saying that there are certain things you cannot say online. And as anyone who reads even one article on Spike knows, we're completely against that. There seems to be this almost myth that the internet is this unregulated wild west when it comes to speech. And yet, as you say, our readers will be familiar with the many crackdowns online, you know, whether they come from the state Around nine people a day are currently arrested in the UK for posting online or from the social media companies themselves. You know, we've seen Alex Jones get banned from Twitter, Facebook, YouTube. And yet this myth persists that actually what we need is more regulation, more clampdowns, less free speech. I think it's concerning from a couple of perspectives. We've existed at a time where freedom of association both on and offline is under attack. So we've seen... Um, in recent weeks, the a torrent of arrests connected to National Action, which are the prescribed right-wing group who are prescribed under the Terrorism Act, uh, a relatively uh, mundane group, um, but they were prescribed on the basis of their apparent connection with the murder of Joe Cox. And of course, that connection was justified on the basis that if people hear certain arguments and hear certain information, they're bound to go out and cause violence. And I think that's an idea that's really prevalent now among our authorities, that if people receive certain information, then they will be liable to go out and commit appalling offences. So I think what's underlying this is this sense that people can't be trusted to hear certain things. And that then translates when it comes to making laws into laws which really go in hard on people's right to freely associate. And of course, that ends up with absurd outcomes, because as a couple of people pointed out, Lucy Powell's bill would have the effect of banning all sorts of groups which you might want people to be able to associate in private for example people who have been victims of particularly sensitive crimes you know people are constantly talking about the need for victims of certain offenses to associate in private that's actually quite a valuable 
uh, way to use these closed groups, and they would technically could well be banned under Lucy Powell's bill. So they've ended up in a place where they've taken a sledgehammer to crack a nut of uh, a, a small number of nut jobs who go out and actually commit these uh, extreme violent offences. And really, what they're doing is taking a sledgehammer to freedom of association, and that is actually happening online and offline as well. One of the other ideas behind the bill is to make um, moderators of Facebook groups responsible for all the content posted on there. And, you know, this idea clearly comes from someone who has absolutely no knowledge of the internet because surely they would realise that most Facebook moderators are hobbyists, could be teenagers, and suddenly they're kind of given this huge legal responsibility for what other people are publishing on their site. Yeah, well, it's, it's very why anyone who's set up a group on Facebook knows that it quickly escalates way out of your control and doesn't necessarily stick to the topic that you want it to stick to. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, for those of us who want to set up groups, I remember in my student days setting up uh, protest groups of which was very much about being a collective. There was no one in charge. So the idea of you having a moderator who was then going to censor people wasn't wasn't on that wasn't part of it i mean this boils down to a total mistrust of individuals and their capabilities to deal with situations so you should be responsible for what you say and the ideal way to deal with someone saying something uh let's say bad or reprehensible whether it's racist sexist whatever it is she's talking about hate echo chambers someone saying hateful speech should be held to account by the other people in that group not silenced by the state and one of the other problems that Lucy Powell has vowed to tackle is fake news, or she called it disinformation. I mean, do we really have a fake news problem? I think really fake news is, has now become code for news that the officials and the government don't understand. Fake news has been used to explain everything from Trump to Brexit to everything else. And really, it's just a way of saying, well, why possibly would people vote in a way that we don't understand? Well, it must be this mysterious thing called fake news, which is driving their behaviour. In reality, we all know the, the truth, which is that people are able to discern fake news from real news. People have judgment about what they read. They're very reasoned in their conclusions. They don't merely see some clickbait link on a social media website and allow that to make up their mind. People are more um, considered than that. And I think all these fake news stories, all these the idea that there is some significant threat to democracy inherent in fake news is really just driven by contempt for people's ability to absorb information, understand information, and also to vote in a way which reflects their own lived experience. You know, one thing we saw around the Brexit vote was the idea that people were swayed by the Daily Mail and their newspapers. Well, it's just completely ignorant because it ignores the fact that people live in the real world, they make judgments about their own conditions, and they do that in, in an independent and robust way. And the newspaper inevitably reflects the current of attitude that's out there in the real world. And so I know I don't buy, I mean, fake news has become a byword for explaining voter behaviour that the government and others don't understand. There was a really fascinating discussion on the Today programme this week about uh, the whole panic about fake news, especially in relation to Lucy Powell's bill. And it was about the fact, one of the examples they gave was there's this group on the internet um, that is for parents who have autistic children who are looking for a cure for autism. And there is this group that uh, puts out information that claims to have a cure for autism. And one of those cures is feeding children bleach. Now, that's terrible. And uh, uh, any kind of hopefully sane and sensible parent will not do that. 
Lucy Powell was saying this is the reason to clamp down on on sites like this because we can't be spreading this kind of fake news. I mean, that is the problem with clamping down on this stuff, that you use extreme examples to actually, as Luke says, completely rule out any discussion around the subject. There is also this sense around that, you know, the tech companies are too powerful, they're too big, they need to be regulated. But often a lot of these proposals take the form of actually managing what users are posting urging Facebook to be fined for when someone posts hate speech or exactly Lucy Powell's proposal of revealing what the content of secret groups. Well, this is Jeremy Corbyn's line that, you know, it's it's all big companies who are controlling us and we need to break down the Murdoch press or Facebook and Twitter hegemony or any of that kind of thing. And as you say, it is an attack on the user because anyone who's going to make a profile, be it on Facebook or Twitter, knows what they're getting into. At this point, because it's been all over the news, knows about things like algorithms and all that kind of stuff. So you choose to engage in this platform and you know that what the risks are. You know you might potentially come across a nut job on Twitter who's going to be particularly mean to you, but you do it anyway. That's called being an adult and that's called engaging in an adult conversation. You're listening to The Spike Podcast. Spiked has no paywalls and no subscriptions. It's contributions from readers and listeners like you that keeps us fighting for freedom and democracy. If you'd like to support Spiked, just go to spiked-online.com and hit the donate button. Boris Johnson has likened Theresa May's checkers proposals to wrapping a suicide vest around the British Constitution and handing the detonator to Brussels. The comments caused outrage. A foreign office minister said the comments were outrageous, inappropriate and hurtful. Arch Remainer MP Sir Alan Duncan said it was one of the most disgusting moments in the history of British politics. But Luke, is this row in the Tory party really just about Boris being brash? No, this is about avoiding the question which has been posed by Brexit and which no one in the political class has been able to answer, which is what should Britain do with the sovereignty which is promised by Brexit? No one wants to engage in that question. We've ended up in a position where the argument is between checkers, which most people can see is Brexit in name only, keeps us subject to a common rule book, um, keeps us effectively subjugated to the European courts. Between that, uh, no deal, which everyone is presenting as, you know, as we've pointed out on Spiked over and over again, an absolutely apocalyptic scenario. Um, and the latest version to come out of the Tory party, which is Canada plus, 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 uh, add as many pluses as you want, <laughs> some kind of free trade uh, arrangement on the model of Canada. Now, look, the point is that Boris proclaims to be in favour of the most extreme version of Brexit, but no one in this country would, I don't think, trust Boris to deliver a no-deal Brexit, because... He doesn't believe in a no-deal Brexit. No one in the Tory party believes in a no-deal Brexit. They're terrified of a no-deal Brexit, just as everyone in the political class is terrified of a no-deal Brexit. And I think what the whole discussion has revealed is just how right we were, us 17.4 million people, to vote for Brexit, to vote for sovereignty, because... What it's revealed is that there were real issues around sovereignty and Brexit. You know, at the time, Remainers said, oh, you know, the EU doesn't really undermine your sovereignty. Well, if that was true, 
Why is it now appearing that it is impossible to leave without a negotiated deal? I think the hemorrhaging of the uh, Tory party around this issue merely shows that none of them are comfortable in dealing with the question that Brexit posed, which was, what do we do when we get our sovereignty back? I couldn't have put it better than that. I mean, the reason why I voted Brexit, along with all the classic examples we always give on Spike, was because I really wanted to shake up Westminster politics. And it is so obvious to anyone with half a brain that the MPs of this country do not want what the people want. And I think the the absolute delight in taking down Boris Johnson and, and the making of all the news about him, I mean... Unfortunately, the guys got divorced uh, this week, so that's in the news. But also the idea that his suicide vest was one of the most disgusting moments in politics. I mean, do you even know about British politics? I mean, that's crazy. I'd put the Iraq war slightly higher. The desire to make this all about Boris and May and their war and the, the sex dossier or all this kind of stuff is exactly as Luke says, to mask the point that there you cannot point to one politician in this country who wants to do right by the Brexit vote. And that is scandalous. I mean, you really can't underplay how atrocious that is, that you have the clearest demand from British voters ever in British history and not one politician will stand up to the plate. Really, there needs at this point some kind of a drastic shake-up. So obviously, you know, May's side really are the Remain side, even if they don't admit it. But of course, there are the more kind of out-and-out Remainers. And one of the things they've been up to this week is this campaign called Women for a People's Vote. Ella, you wrote about this this week. Do you want to tell us a bit more? Uh, So this is the People's Vote's latest attempt. People's Vote is an arch Remainer group attempt to undermine Brexit. And they've now branded their anti-democracy under the guise of being for women. So they did this kind of launch event, which, surprise, surprise, had a speaker on it, Grace Campbell, Alistair Campbell's daughter. I mean, you couldn't have made up the lineup. And it was all about this idea that post-Brexit, women are going to be out of jobs. Post-Brexit, we're going to go back to the 1940s where women are being whipped in the streets and, you know, mothers are being forced and shackled to the, you know, kitchen sink and all this rubbish. Uh, But chief among them was Caroline Criado Perez, who made a speech and wrote in The New European about how women and others had been duped. They'd been sold a pup, she said, about Brexit, and that Brexit was fundamentally a feminist issue and opposing it was a feminist cause. Now, this is a woman who this year um, relaunched her political career off the back of celebrating the vote in the form of the Millicent Fawcett statue, which she, I was there, I was listening to her speech and it was all about how important voting was, how important democracy was. She then spends the rest of her time undermining one of the most important democratic votes in British political history. I mean, this is insane. And it's an insult to feminism and women's liberation to use it to such anti-democratic means. So maybe I'm getting my history wrong, but I I always understood the gains won by women to be a kind of feminist victory. Now I've learned that actually all women's rights come from the EU. Well, not just just those rights. I mean, workers' rights, women's rights. Mm. It's almost as if the EU intervened to prevent us sliding into tyranny. Of course, it gets it completely the wrong way around in that the people, uh, women, workers democratic movements are responsible for our rights. Um, Actually, the kind of protections offered by the EU are pretty minimal in terms of, um, and certainly are not that far short of what we have in domestic law anyway. So the idea that, you know, either rights for women 
whatever that means in EU standards, or rights for workers are going to vanish after we leave the European Union is just another one of those complete scare stories. In fact, the EU, you know, as we've seen in relation to France, have actually undermined workers' rights consistently when the French uh, legislature attempts to pass broadly pro-worker legislation, the EU comes out against it because it undermines their broader programme. So the idea that the EU is in favour of any rights or has been responsible for any rights is completely and utterly mad. I always love bringing up this example because there is um, EU law that you are not allowed to advertise for formula milk for babies um, because you are meant to be promoting this idea that breast is best now that might seem insignificant but actually when you look at what that means from a feminist perspective that means that women are supposed to be discouraged from formula feeding their babies which means that women are supposed to be breastfeeding anyone who has breastfed knows that it is a 24 7 on tap job you do not have a life if you are breastfeeding so in terms of making women freer, protecting women's rights, supporting women's ability to make choices in their lives, the EU certainly, in the case of this one law, which actually means a lot, isn't a friend of women. And who could forget the tampon tax? This was a big you know, feminist campaign to rid us of the tampon tax several years ago, as soon as they found out that actually it was an EU law keeping Britain's tampon tax in place, the campaign faded away. <laughs> You're listening to The Spike Podcast. If you enjoy the podcast, please give us a rating and a review. It really helps people find us. Last weekend, Serena Williams flipped out at the US Open. Williams was penalised for receiving coaching during the game, for breaking her racket and for insulting the umpire. While some saw Serena's outburst as the kind of petulance we're used to from celebrity sports stars, she insisted that she was in fact fighting for women's rights. Many agreed decrying her punishment as racist and sexist. Ella, what do you make of these accusations of bigotry? Look, I mean, anyone who watched that, and I did sit and watch it afterwards, will know that Serena Williams was out of order. The, the, the coaching question, you can have a row about it. I mean, there's videos of him making signs. Who knows? I'm not a tennis expert, whatever. But after that, she then broke her racket and then continually abused this umpire uh, I mean, kept going back at him, demanded that he should give her an apology, called him a liar, called him a thief. Tennis has very strict rules on this. Um, and it seems to me that she was being incredibly out of order. Now, we know from tennis history that lots of people are out of order. John McEnroe's largely made his fame out of doing that. The idea that this was sexist or racist is completely trash. I mean, there's no evidence to show that the umpire was being either of those things. He was being a bit of a stickler for the rules. And I was talking to someone who is a big tennis fan and said, you know, a good umpire will kind of meet someone halfway and crucially let the game play on in a means in which both players can play on. And this huge disruption was, you know, destroyed the poor other player, Naomi Osaka's win, which is, I think, the real story here. Yeah, I mean, I think... Naomi Osaka was robbed of a great moment. Japan has now produced their first ever Grand Slam winner, a woman who has fought throughout her career, had some really difficult results late on in tournaments and has now triumphed over one of, you know, the game's greatest players. I think it really shows something about contemporary feminism in a way 
that they would rather focus on Serena Williams, perceived victim of uh, sexism and racism, than they would on the triumph of Naomi Osaka, someone who has um, brought a Grand Slam victory to her uh, home country. It does strike me that contemporary feminism is orientated around victimhood to such an extent that they're incapable of seeing um, women when they really triumph and really do something incredibly admirable. It's also worth pointing out, just emphasising how petulant the Serena Williams outburst was, was that this umpire was actually known as a bit of a stickler for the rules. He'd already undertaken the same punishment in relation to three or four male players uh, in recent history. So he was known as someone who would really fine people for breaking the rules. So the idea that this is at all exceptional in relation to Serena has been completely blown out of the water. There seems to be this kind of, um, I guess, meme developing that, you know, I don't know if you've heard this, but men's outbursts on the sporting field are viewed as passionate and dedicated, whereas women are seen as aggressive and hysterical. But I sort of don't know how anyone who actually watches any sport could draw that conclusion. I mean, you know, certainly when I think of footballers, I think of them being, you know, whiny, pathetic, slightly (laughs) petulant. I really don't see this double standard that people are, are trying to say there is. Well, also the stats don't stand up for the US Open. 86 code violations were given to men and 22 were given to women. So if you're going on the basis of that, of who was fined for what, uh, men were fined more. And like I said, the the fame of John McEnroe from being this kind of incredibly loud-mouthed, rude, over-the-top, um, sweary tennis player. I mean, he never got off. He always got fined, as I understand it. He always got donked. It was just that it was part of his character. Actually, as it happens, Serena Williams is also a bit known for this. There are clips of her breaking her racket, flipping out. She's got a temper. And the sad thing about this is, fair enough, I actually quite like it when sports people flip out. I like it when there's a bit of passion. I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. When you turn that into this kind of political question of bigotry, it just wrecks it for everyone. It's no fun to watch someone flipping out and breaking their racket if you're then going to say it's because of sexism or racism. One story that really caught my eye was uh, that some tennis umpires have considered unionising because a lot of them feel like they've been hung out to dry by this because... The Women's Tennis Association and the US Tennis Association actually agree with um, Cerulean Williams. They say that, you know, she was dealt with unfairly. And it took a while before the ITF, the International Tennis Federation, actually defended, you know, the umpire's decision. And so they feel like their decisions and their kind of um, ability to properly umpire has been undermined by this whole row. Well, I think it's a great shame. And I think it when sort of this level of identity politics can intervene to this extent in sporting events like this it really threatens the integrity of the game because if umpires are not able to be objective and impartial and at every turn have to consider how their decision might be interpreted in relation to an individual uh, player then sport is in trouble you can't carry on a game based on rules if you don't have someone who is trusted to deliver objective judgment and it's extremely pernicious when you think about it, when you follow it through to its conclusion. The end point is, well, no one can rid themselves of their inherent bias about particular players. You know, if there is a male umpire watching a female tennis game, or if there is a white umpire watching a a game played by uh, non-white players, then the idea is going to be that almost every decision 
is open to some kind of question or judgment. I mean, where does it end? The idea is that people just can't sit in objectivity over other people. It's actually a really pernicious thing to think about. So I think good on them, unionize, come back against this stuff, because I actually think there's a case that people who stand up for objectivity and impartiality in sport might well have a place in our kind of culture where offence is taken at everything. Because if offence is taken at everything, if every decision is open to this level of scrutiny, then genuine competitive sport might just no longer be possible. It seems amazing as well that, you know, there is this accusation of racism in the world of sport where it, it actually brings together people of across the globe. You know, you can't get more global, you can't get more diverse you can't, in a sense, get more objective than sport. And yet, nevertheless, identity politics still finds a way of kind of creeping in and of making kind of normal practice almost impossible. I mean, part of the problem with the discussion about racism is this very quickly stopped being about the event itself. And is now the discussion all about this cartoon that was drawn by an Australian cartoonist and put out, I think it was in the Herald Sun, which to my mind was racist. It was a depiction of Serena Williams, huge in kind of a gorilla-like stance with massive lips. And in the background, there was a Naomi Osaka who was not recognisably Naomi Osaka, but was just a white blonde woman. I saw the cartoon. Was it tasteful? No. However, there should be a middle ground between saying something is utterly evil, wicked, racist propaganda and something which is misjudged. And we seem to have lost that capacity to say, well, maybe there's a halfway house here. My problem with the discussion around the cartoon was that no one was comfortable in saying, oh, that's a bit old-fashioned. However, as, as we've discussed, you know, this wasn't really about the cartoon. The cartoon plays into this victim narrative that built up around the whole discussion, which was that Serena Williams, you know, lest we forget, a drippingly wealthy, successful mm -hmm. sportswoman... The idea that she was the victim here of anything mm. is completely laughable and completely manufactured. So the, the cartoon itself really isn't the point. The point really is the narrative that this plays into, that this incredibly wealthy, full of status tennis player is somehow the victim of a nefarious, racist, sexist society. It literally makes no sense. She is not a victim of anything. She is wildly successful. The fact that these moments can be brought into a narrative around tennis race gender just so ha shows how completely confused these discussions have become thanks for listening to the spike podcasts we'll be back next week with more in the meantime you can visit spiked-online.com for your daily dose of spike content thanks for listening and we'll see you next week